Welcome to this episode of ESG Factor, brought to you by ESG Ireland and the Institute of Banking. This series focuses on the practical integration of environmental, social and governance, or ESG factors, hence the name, the ESG Factor. In this series, we'll have in-depth interviews with those working across ESG and equities, bonds, property and hedge funds. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. This episode, we're delighted to be joined by an eminent academic in the area, where we'll explore the importance of ESG follow-up and responsible investment in general. Vincent, I'll hand over to you to introduce fully. Thanks, Emer. This is going to be a very interesting podcast we have for you today. Um, just to give you a little bit of context, I spoke to Professor Aaron Yoon on Friday. He is a professor at Northwestern University. I actually came across his uh, profile last week when I was reading some articles on ESG, and his article stood out for me because he was questioning, I suppose, the follow through in terms of ESG. And for me, I think if we are going to really move ESG forward and for it to become something of real value, I think we need to all question ESG continually. I think we don't reach a point where ESG has been implemented and everything and the world is 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 fine. I think we need to continually go back to are we doing it the right way and ask tough questions? And I think that's why Aaron's article stood out for me because he's just after completing uh, some research with one of his colleagues. And um, it's very interesting in terms of looking at active fund managers and testing whether they are actually following through. So that's uh, really interesting. Just to give you a little bit on his bio, because it's a really impressive bio. He earned his master's in economics and bachelor's in economics from Northwestern University in four years. He also earned his doctorate of business administration from Harvard University. That takes five years. Prior to academia, he worked as an equities analyst and sales trader at Credit Suisse. And what I find most interesting is he controlled air traffic in the 8th U.S. Army as a Korean augmentee. So, Aaron, pleased to have you on the podcast today. You might start with your... Uh, background as an air traffic controller that sounds very interesting to me no sure uh so um my family moved to the u.s when i was six years old and uh, my father was an academic and um i decided to keep my korean citizenship so time came when i was 18 i was called from my country to serve in the korean korean military and uh, thankfully, just because, you know, I spent a lot of time in the U.S. and know the culture and et cetera, I was given an opportunity to serve Korea as a augmentee to the U.S. Army. So what that meant was wearing U.S. uniform, but with a Korean flag in the U.S. space and just interact with the U.S. soldiers and act like a U.S. soldier, but a Korean diplomat soldier in the U.S. space. And the uh, fun part was that um, I was chosen to serve as an air traffic controller. Uh, controlling VIP aircrafts. So VIP helicopters that come into the capital airspace, you know, I would translate for them, control their air traffic, take them around, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that naturally built in and uh, served as a foundation for my uh, job as a sales trader. Um, so, you know, um, job as an air traffic controller is in a small tower with a lot of men, with a lot of adrenaline. And uh, sales trading, as you know, is, uh, you know, Wolf of Wall Street was on sales traders and um, it was just natural shoe in for me. So uh, it was a fun job that I worked and um, you know, I really wanted to become a teacher in business. So that's why I left uh, industry. And then uh, thankfully, I had an opportunity to study at HBS. And uh, here I am now. So back in my alma mater at Northwestern. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, you know, it's such a, an accomplishment. I mean, Harvard is obviously a very prestigious university, um, but it's five years to complete your doctorate at Harvard, yeah? Yes, 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 yes. It was a good time. Quite a, uh, I suppose that in itself shows you, your commitment to teaching. I uh, I actually lived in South Boston myself for, for eight months and I would love to have gone to Harvard, but I think I probably would have been the most annoying guy on campus because I would have been quoting good with hunting all the time. So this is a habit, man. But uh, <laughs> that's definitely my favorite film. But just in terms of your time at Harvard, because I think most people, when they talk about sustainability, will actually be familiar with, with some of your research without actually knowing it. There's a paper, Corporate Sustainability, First Evidence on Materiality. And it was published in 2015. You were one of the co-authors. Some very important findings from that report and implications for asset managers and the ESG movement. Can you maybe give us a little bit of background on that paper? Sure. So um, when I uh, was at Harvard, um, I met a uh, co-author, uh, George Seraphim. He's a very committed and a very brilliant academic whose focus is heavily on ESG. And um, my background was sales trading and quantitative research, right? So we naturally spoke a lot about, you know, how do you generate positive stock returns? How do you look at not just financial, but non-financial information to generate stock returns? And one thing that we talked about was ESG or CSR back in the days, because in 2011, 2012, this initiative of CSR and ESG just sort of started to take off, but people had no idea as to how to understand it or how to quantify it. And uh, I've tried you know, creating long short portfolios when I was at Credit Suisse using ESG factors or CSR signals, but we couldn't find any uh, positive stock returns associated with ESG. And that's something that George and I talked about. And um, George and I thought, oh, why don't we apply this concept of financial materiality? So sector level materiality into ESG and then parse the ESG signals out into two parts. So what we mean by sector level materiality is as follows. Let's say we have a Wall Street bank, a big bank, telling investors that we have to use shareholder money because we want to be going into a building that's 10 times more expensive that is a lead platinum versus let's say we have a non-renewable company saying that, you know what, we will invest on reducing our greenhouse gas and reducing our CO2. So one, the former is doing something that is not really related to their sector level core practices versus the latter is very, very tied to their sector level core practices, right? So essentially what we do is we separate the two and we create two scores of ESG and then we find that this material score, the one that's related to their sector level core competence, actually leads to outperforming in stock returns. So um, this later became part of my uh, dissertation at Harvard and also was a big support to my knowledge and according to the media and institutional investors of justifying ESG. That's how my second project on this UNPRI assessing uh, asset managers' performance on it uh, started. Yeah, so I think I think that's an important point uh, for listeners because when we get to your current uh, research from Northwestern, it's a little bit, I suppose, some would say more critical. But I think uh, there's a, there's important reasons for that. But this research paper, as you said, many have said in the in the media that it kind of was a pivotal moment in actually more asset managers taking it seriously because they're saying, okay, this is material. So it, there's actual genuine reasons to start incorporating ESG. And in terms of, 
like when you when you guys published that paper obviously it's from harvard so i think probably let's face it that the way the world works with harvard on it there's probably more people willing to listen if if it was just the average individual saying it so coming out of that was there i suppose how did it impact yourself and your colleagues was there more requests to speak at governmental organizations and regulators etc on that so i think absolutely um for sure no doubt and even as a graduate student you know i had opportunities to speak at um you know places like bcg you know places like you know a, a bunch of places right and even after leaving harvard and being at northwestern you know, I had opportunities to speak at the UN, you know, SNP, NASDAQ, et cetera. But I think why people found this interesting is that we have some type of input or use of capital, right, from a firm valuation perspective, and it has to come out somehow, right? But ESG investment, measuring how that comes out is very difficult, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of asset managers know that or institutional investors or analysts know that firms do ESG or CSR related investments, but they somehow had to tie to value and they needed someone who is an unbiased academic potentially to show them how they may use that framework conceptually and then apply it on their own. And can I just ask a, a very quick question that it's, it's interesting in terms of the, the non-bias of the of the academic, particularly, I would say, the quantitative uh, researcher. Uh, but when you first uh, had the, the, the data that showed before you, you, you broke it up, that showed that there, there was no material difference. How did how did you feel then? So when I initially saw saw this. Right. So. Um, this actually goes back to when I was a quant researcher at Credit Suisse. It was very difficult, and it is still more difficult, I would say, for brokers to add value to their client investors. They would look at all sorts of factors, signals, et cetera, and for institutional investors to add value to their asset allocators, right, their pension funds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Most people viewed CSR and ESG as fluff, as you call it. But my question, and I'm sure it was George's question and my other co-author Mo's question as well, we had a question about, okay, so if this is fluff, why are companies doing it? And there are many academic papers and anecdotal evidence showing that it's PR, you know, it's this, it's that, it's really like, you know, warm-hearted managers, et cetera. But essentially, if the company's resources are used, it has to come out somehow. And there would be a cross-sectional difference as to how effective that would come out. And it could depend on governance. It can depend on management quality. But it would also depend on the type of ESG investments that firms make and how it's related to their core practice. And that's the question that we had in mind. And I think for, for listeners, it might be no harm just to clarify between uh... CSR and ESG and I think if we if we get to touch on Milton Friedman we'll also be discussing it but from my perspective I think corporate social responsibility in terms of how it evolved was pretty much as a reporting exercise you know there's lots of resources going into reporting on the activities of companies to portray, portray them in a certain way whereas for me I think the difference with ESG is that it's to be integrated into decision making ac across the organization and I think if we are going to see ESG reach its potential, I think we really need it to be integrated into the decision making rather than it just becoming a reporting exercise like CR, CSR. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. So, no, I, I actually think that's absolutely right. I, told, I cannot agree with you more because there's a difference between the ESG disclosure 
and ESG performance or CSR disclosure or CSR performance of a firm, right? So another key question from that is um, that is that uh, how do you assess non-disclosures of CSR or ESG into portfolio decision-making process, right? That's a key question that you know I think a lot about. That's a key question that a lot of data vendors like Sustainalytics and MIC, MSCI, when I interact with them, they think a lot about. So that's a, that's a very good question. And I think it has to move towards just from disclosure angle, which is essentially what PRI and PRI signatories are doing right now. And it has to move on ensuring that it's capturing the correct performance. And I think we are definitely uh, headed to the right direction in terms of that. So how do you go about trying to, to, to build in non-disclosures then? Yeah, so there, so academics, um, you know, we think a lot about this too. And um, so, for example, this issue came up in this PRI paper as well. So there are papers that say that say that if you don't disclose, it's really bad news. So in one instance, uh, for robustness test, we assigned the most worst score for these f- firms that do not disclose on these dimensions. Um, and also, we just use the average score and assign the average score as a uh, you know, to these firms that are missing uh, ESG scores. So for now, the state of the art, I think, is that just use both and try to show that your results are not sensitive to different approaches. Um, but I'm sure that, um, you know, these data vendors are doing a lot of thinking you know, behind how to best capture these, you know, or best assess these non-disclosures. Yeah, and I think just again for listeners, because this, um, this for some of the, the people listening, they might be thinking, "What are we on about with non-disclosures and disclosures?" It can get get a bit technical and confusing. But I think the easiest way to describe it is that each of these vendors, these data providers, would put a set of questions to an organization, and then where an organization doesn't actually answer the question, that's technically a non-disclosure. Just so anyone that's listening is wondering what, we're, what we're, we are on about with, with the non-disclosure stuff. But in terms of then your most recent research, the title is Analyzing Active Managers' Commitment to ESG, Evidence from United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment. So maybe just to start off, give uh, listeners a brief uh, explainer on the UNPRI. Yeah, so UNPRI is a global initiative, essentially that there are three types of signatories that sign this initiative. But essentially, this initiative is to be active owners and also incorporate ESG factors in their portfolio decision making. So signatories would sign that. So the first signatory are asset owners, the second are asset managers, and the third are data service providers. So asset owners, meaning you know, the Government Pension Fund of Japan, Nor- Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, et cetera, asset managers like BlackRock and Fidelity, and data service providers like MSCI, Sustainalytics, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Essentially, asset managers are committing to sign uh, to be more active owners, right? And um, this, uh, this initiative was initiated in 2005 and was launched in 2006. And it started with about a few hundred billion dollars of asset ma- asset under management uh, globally, and now it's grown to more than eighty trillion dollars. So, eighty trillion. To give you some context, U.S. market cap right now, because market has uh, you know come up quite significantly, is less than thirty trillion dollars. So, the amount of asset managers' um, assets under management that committed to be ESG active or aware is almost as three times as large as the entire U.S. market cap, right? 
But one thing that I found fascinating by interacting with these asset managers and you know folks you know uh, in the in the industry is that there aren't uh, and there are some requirements that PRI signatories have to follow. You know, for example, you know they need to you know exchange notes with their fellow you know asset managers, trying to get other asset managers to sign. You know, et cetera, et cetera. That one actually sounds strange, doesn't it? To to get their their to get their other asset managers to sign. It's almost like one of the principles. It's like uh, get everyone else into the same group. There's a bit. It's a bit strange to have that as one of the six principles. Yeah. Sure. So they essentially want like a broader buy-in, I think, you know, like a big market share and then make uh, different changes in initiatives. So these asset managers sign UNPRI and uh, and then their requirement is to essentially um, put out a disclosure saying that, you know, these are some of the things that we're doing, but that's about it. And if they don't you know, if they fail to follow these requirements and voluntary guidances for, you know, that is monitored for two years, you know, they may get kicked out of UNPRI. But what caught my eye was that no one got delisted. And UNPRI PRI has been around for about almost 14, 15 years now. So I questioned whether, and when I interact with asset managers, because I, off, I very frequently interact with asset managers and asset owners in this space. And what they told me was, Aaron, you know, it's, you know, your paper with, uh, you know, your two co-authors gave you gave us a lot of mileage and, you know, justification as to how to incorporate ESG information, et cetera. But as you know, there's a lot of tough hurdles. It's very difficult to incorporate ESG, as you know. So, you know, that that essentially got me interested in this research question and pursuing it. Yeah. And so you have a couple of key findings. Um, do you want to maybe go through them and, and see, I suppose, the two most important takeaways from it? You look at firms that signed up and then to see, actually, did it make a material difference in terms of their performance after they've signed up? So in effect, I suppose, if we're thinking from our trustee advisor perspective, we see this this uh, stamp of approval, effectively, UNPRI member is there any real value to it is the question people would be asking. You're looking at it to see, is there an improvement in ESG performance or is there even an improvement in financial return? So you've looked at that and some of the findings are a bit kind of concerning, I guess. Yes. So what I find is, uh, very, I think, three simple things. First is that um, these signatory funds after signing the UNPRI experience a very significant increase in fund flows. So roughly 5% increase in fund flows every quarter for the next six quarters. Uh, you know, I don't, people may have different sense as to how much is a lot, but that's actually a lot. So there is another academic paper that looked at Morningstar Globe ratings when it launched, and they document about a 0.3% increase per, uh, of fund flows per quarter. So we're documenting a very, very significant number. However, we don't find essentially any improvements in ESG on however we look at, and I'll get into the details uh, very soon. But, you know, and then these funds are exhibiting a significant decrease in stock returns and a consistent decrease in stock returns. So let me just give you um, some of the results, uh, some some, some, uh, highlights of the results. So, you know, you can question that, Aaron, you know, there's so many dimensions of ESG, you know, what do you mean by ESG not, you know, improving? So first, what we do is we, uh, we create a fund-level ESG score. So um, evaluating each individual firm-level ESG scores that are within that fund. So essentially an average score of ESG. 
for that particular fund. And uh, we don't find any improvements. And this result is actually robust to using MSCI, Sustainalytics, True Value ESG scores, and ESMG and financial materiality subscores of these vendors. And these are three of the most very commonly used vendors. So from a person who is allocating capital to these signatories, it's very difficult for them to assess, right? With readily use, using readily available ESG scores, it's very difficult to actually have a buy-in that these funds are improving ESG scores, right? And a, a potential criticism to this approach is that um, what about, what, you know, funds maybe, their hands may be tied, right? You know, these are, they hold hundreds of stocks, et cetera. So what we do is we only look at the active asset managers. We exclude ETFs and index funds because their hands are tied. But we see no improvements whatsoever on the active guys as well. And then what we do is that, okay, so we may not be capturing fully what the fund's uh, actual real efforts are because we're washing out and we're taking an average of ESG scores, right? So what we do is that we look at the total number of controversies uh, within their portfolio holding. So how many controversies do stocks in their holdings experience? And we actually find that the environmental controversies go up after they sign, and they are not exercising votes more on environmental issues. I mean, to give them credit, we do find that on social issues, they are exercising more votes. And then there is an improvement. So there's a decrease in social controversies of their holding. A social controversies could be potentially easier to do, right? So having uh, you know, a particular type of individual in the board versus changing the firm practice on installing you know, GHG or CO2 you know, reducing practices within a firm, they're very different horizon and they're, they cost, they're, the costs of the firm are very different. But essentially, what we find is that we're not really finding much from the signal. And Aaron, can I just ask a, a question? And, and for, for listeners that aren't as uh, w well versed in the quantitative versus qualitative research me methods, quantitative re research typically looks at the what. So, what is the problem? Whereas qualitative research uh, is is the why. So, why is that the way it is? As I was reading your uh, your, your work in advance of this. What kept on coming at me was why. So why 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 was that the case, and why do you think um, the, the, the phenomenon was happening? So that's a very difficult question, to be really frank. Um, especially because I um, interact very frequently with um, asset managers, and uh, I would continue to you know I would love to continue the dialogue with asset managers and the folks at the UNPRI. Um, but I think what's going on is that. There are funds that are doing well on ESG, right? That's another question that folks could ask. And what about those funds? Are you give, not giving them credit, right? So we address that in our research execution as well. So we actually examine whether funds that had higher ESG score are more likely to sign PRI. We don't find evidence of that. And one thing that we find so fascinating is that flows, flows increase regardless of fund level ESG score. So PRI signatories are receiving, fund, they're experiencing a fund increase, flow increase, regardless of their ESG score, right? Um, and another finding that we have is that, okay, so given that, if they experience more flows, does that lead to ESG score increase? And it actually doesn't. 
So me as a unbiased academic, we, we talked about this a little earlier, right? So what you mentioned, what you mentioned is that your definition of quantitative versus qualitative is essentially for academic jargon. Is it a positive research or a normative research? And I'm in the positive camp or quantitative camp where I literally just provide you with a descriptive information. I also build hypotheses around it, of course, but I tell the readers to judge what is going on. You know, what do you think is going on essentially, right? That, that's the question, you know, is it PRI signatories or on average, not all of them, but on average, are they captured? And are they just not doing anything, but they're just doing it PR? If so, are there ones that are doing it better? Who are the ones that are doing better? And what we find is that quantitative driven funds and also institutional only funds actually improve ESG scores. So, you know, there is obviously a silver lining to our story. And I want, um, that's something that I want the asset allocators and the regulators to get out of. When I spoke at the United Nations um, in December, last December, we had some folks uh, uh, from the SEC uh, in, the, in the audience. Uh, in, in addition to asset managers, data providers, asset owners, et cetera. And then a few weeks later, you know, coincidentally, I saw that SEC starting a probe on funds execution of ESG. And I think it's very um, important to have such a sort of um, an umbrella organization, you know, so to speak, to watch over ESG execution because so much money is into it. And it's not only, you know, asset, sophisticated asset owner, you know, like, uh, Norges or Calpers or Calster's money, but it's also your money and my money. You know, it's, it's, it's our pension money that is going into these states. You know, I, I, my parents, because I, they didn't know what ESG was until I, I did it. And then they were like surprised to see, you know, my name appearing on the news, you know, uh, now and then. And they're like, you know what, we're going to actually invest in this XXX fund, ESG fund, you know. And so it, it's, it's their pension money that's in there too. And I really want that we get this right as a collective group. And I wanted to point out that my research, even though it is pointing out some of the negative things, it is definitely not to discredit UNPRI's effort. I really wanted to be very clear on that because I think they have the right minds and they are not yet in a stage where they now finally have the buy-in. And I think chapter two is that ensuring that um, they do it right. I did speak to UNDP and UNPRI folks in January and February, and they're starting new initiatives to better monitor these uh, signatories. And I think this is exactly what I really want from my research, because I, me as the, one of the biggest, arguably one of the biggest proponents of ESG, I really want everyone to get this correctly. And I'm just teasing out that cross-sectional differences and fund characteristics that are associated with better improvements or better incorporation of ESG than the others as well. And that's what I really like about your research in that you haven't just kind of sat in your laurels and enjoyed uh, being invited to talk about ESG at the various conferences. You're actually continually testing it. One of the things from an asset uh, owner perspective, I suppose, just coming from the investment consulting side of things, what you're saying is funds are flowing in when this stamp of approval, this UNPRI stamp comes on. When I hear that, I'm thinking the trustees of these pension schemes and the advisors, et cetera, are kind of almost just ticking the box saying, okay, they're in the UNPRI, that's fine. We don't actually need to differentiate between the particular funds. So I think maybe that's something to think about from a trustee um, 
perspective because we have various fund questionnaires etc and sometimes they can become a bit mechanical and just ticking boxes so i think maybe there's a, a lesson to be learned there that they actually have to go um beneath the actual label and understand what's going on at a fund level yeah and i i totally agree with you on that um i think there's a good example uh, i think a good example of an asset owner that does a good job is japan's gpif um, the Government Pension Fund of Japan. And uh, when I spoke to a hero, um, Hiro Mizuno, who's going to be stepping down sooner, stepped down already, but he's been the CIO of Japan's GPIF for some time. And uh, he mentioned that there are systematic ways of like, like a balanced scorecard, if you will, of ESG factors that they have. And they communicate very clearly to their asset managers that if you don't follow this, we'll have to cut you off in about two quarters. So you need certain type of like a watchdog and, you know, like more than just a checklist, but a very detailed checklist on whether these asset managers are doing well. And as you see, you know, um, big asset owners are not the only ones that are allocating capital. Right? It could be you and me. Right. So if I am allocating money to ESG. I would like to know clearly how these how this asset manager is doing. And I think my research really calls for how asset managers should communicate their ESG efforts to the stakeholder. Yeah. And that's really part of the increased awareness. I think that's one of the big reasons why I set up ESG Ireland was to try and bring this kind of knowledge to the ordinary investor and all, I think, stakeholders that need to be more informed. Our discussion up to this point has really been around the active funds and just looking at uh, effectively a structure that invests in underlying companies. So ultimately, you know, we can say certain fund managers aren't doing enough, but then we have to look beneath the funds and say, okay, are the companies doing enough? So, you know, it's, it's challenging, I think, for fund managers. And then they need to start seeing more action. I suppose they need to hold the underlying companies more accountable, but we need more executives and more boards moving this forward as well. Oh, I mean, no doubt. I think that's a that's a great point. Um, so you know, if I just if I if I if I may, you know, I have a, just a few thoughts on that. So essentially, I think when we see ESG or CSR or sustainability efforts as a phenomenon from the firm's perspective, I think what you're getting at is. What causes ESG? Is it the really, really, uh, you know, responsible firm manager or a corporate issuer manager, or does it come from, you know, a institutional owner or institutional investor like, you know, Japan's GPI, for example, that holds 10, 12 percent of outstanding Japanese equity, and they view that the whole they can't really, you know, uh, not hold a particular stock or not. So they, that's why they want change to that stock, right? That corporate issue, right? That company. So essentially what you're pointing out is, to, to me, it sounds like, you know, what is the direction of causality? And I think a lot of things shape ESG. And I think, you know, I've mentioned, and I've been telling you for, you know, the past 30 minutes that, oh, institutional investors and institutional owners are very important dynamic. But if the tone doesn't happen, if the, the commitment doesn't change from a corporate issuer's perspective, it'd be very difficult difficult and very a short term and a one-off type of thing, right? So I think you're talking about a very, very important aspect of that is, is change, the need for change. Yeah, and I, I think that's what kind of leads me into um, a man from the Chicago School of Economics, the infamous Milton Friedman. I wrote an article recently on uh, Milton Friedman because 50 years ago, 
he had an article in the New York Times. It was the social responsibility of businesses to increase its profits. And it's become a very famous article. It's often quoted in, in the media saying this is what the thinking was in 1970, kind of trying to emphasize that we're, we've changed dramatically. Just to give listeners a snapshot of the uh, of the article, it said businessmen who talk this way are unwitting puppets of the intellectual forces that have been undermining the basis of a free society these past decades, preaching pure and unadulterated socialism. Now, Milton Friedman, you can listen to him on, on YouTube. His lectures are extremely interesting. He's a man that has huge conviction behind uh, behind his beliefs. And I suppose they're shaped by that time in that capitalism and freedom was actually the name of the book he was plugging at the time. But what I find interesting in his in his paper is that he's saying the social responsibility is to increase profits. And I think his fundamental issue, certainly what I picked up with, was the CEOs that were talking about social responsibility as if they were these pious executives doing great things, changing the world, but they were acting out of self-interest. Uh, so he's like, it's a cloaked social responsibility, he calls it. So when we were talking on Friday, one of the things you pointed out was that companies have fundamentally changed. So it's it, intangible assets are now a massive part of the value of companies. So it's even more relevant to carry out activities that improves your relationships with your various stakeholders. And it's almost like Friedman did have a very strong uh, line in terms of what the responsibility was. But now, actually, when you think about it, the, that responsibility of making profits long-term profits that are sustainable needs you to think about stakeholders. So it's it's almost like the two are not actually far as far apart as some people might believe. No, I, I think that's a great, great observation. Um, so obviously me sort of growing up in Chicago, you know, I, you know, even from an undergrad, undergrad for my undergraduate, et cetera, you know, I've been, I've been heavily influenced about that train of thought. But um, one thing that I encourage my MBA student to think about is that when you look at a phenomena and when you look at something that other folks say, you should have your own view and have a justification as to why. And I have my own view and I'm not claiming that it is correct or not because I don't have any empirical evidence to back up with that so far. But I think when Milton Friedman gave that argument of shareholder primacy, the society of the United States and the industry, um, you know, like the level of maturity and in industry and overall society is very different. So for example, Back in the days, you know, we had a lot of heavy industry and industrials, right? And you don't really need sophisticated labor. Rather, you're focused more on sort of making sure that, you know, the quality of manufactured good is a good thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But now we live in an age where when we, when we go to like, you know, when you visit Google or Facebook, you know, you, know, you have all these entertainment and, you know, these, uh, these big companies, you know, I mean, Google's market cap is more than a trillion dollars. These big big companies, right? And um, they're essentially inducing their, you know, trying to facilitate the thinking of their employees, their their really core employees, and ensuring employee satisfaction. For example, employee happiness is a huge part of a success, right? Key to success, right? So that you know, I think you know, while I know where Milton Friedman is coming from, and while I understand where his viewpoints are coming from and shaped at that particular stage of time, maybe it is time to think about this differently in the context of 21st century. No, I agree. And sometimes those lines, you know, they're, they're kind of snappy and they, they create great headlines. You know, Milton Friedman said this, and obviously he had fairly kind of, he had, he had very uh, 
clear convictions about capitalism and freedom, etc. But when I think about maximizing profits, I think one of the issues he had was that portraying profits um, as a bad thing would become an issue. And I think there's there's credibility to that. What I also think is that when we think about profits, we almost have to think differently about profits. So part of that predatory element of capitalism has been the focus on short-term profits. So my viewpoint is that we need to be focusing on companies developing long-term profits that are sustainable, that do not impact on society and people in a negative way. And I think that that's a fundamental change in mindset that we need around um, how companies operate. Because you know, one of the things in ESG is how are executives incentivized? And the incentive packages tend to be very, you know, short term in terms of the, of how they're structured. So a CEO is rewarded for delivering a big jump in the stock price over a two year period, as opposed to saying, you know, what we need to worry about society in 50 years, 100 years, we'll evaluate you on how the company is looking in 10 years. So I think Milton Friedman's points are, are fine in terms of companies are, have to make a profit to sustain themselves, but we just need to think about profits differently and the impact on the environment and society. Sure. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. It's interesting. Um, it's, so this podcast is being recorded during the time of um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think over the past number of episodes, we've been reflecting on what impact uh, that will have on ESG. Uh, so it'd be interesting getting your, your 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 thoughts on that. But also in term, I think it'll have significant impact on the on this on how we view sustainability, the sustainability of a company. Like I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same in uh, Chicago, Aaron. I'm sure it, it is, but particularly smaller local community businesses in Ireland um, have have are really struggling or have already gone under because the, uh, the, the their market has been uh, taken away and that's with uh, that's after three weeks so the it, it has become very apparent that uh, the sustainability of, of many businesses um isn't what it should have been um and uh, yeah is, is it the same in in Chicago it's it's very similar you know we don't really have much foot foot traffic anymore and um, a lot of the businesses are temporarily closed because of the ordinance put out by the state government on stay at home, right? About stay at home. And I think you touch on a very important point. So let's say I'm a company and in this crisis where when everyone is closed, right? And a lot of small shops closed and you hear about some of these big companies trying to help the small neighboring companies out, right? So what what would, and then you have some companies that don't do anything. So what would be the impact of the first? You're, the big company that is trying to help out the neighborhood, uh, neighborhood small shops is essentially trying to boost the economy and hold it up, right? And that will have a positive impact uh, later on when, when things um, recover, you know, whether it is, you know, PR, whether it is, et cetera, et cetera. But if you lose that neighborhood, you know, small competition or, you know, small company in that ecosystem, the ecosystem would die. So I think this COVID-19 has a lot of implications on how we should view business as a society. And, you know, markets come off like 20, 25%, right? And, you know, time comes, you know, the, these, a lot of index funds and ETFs and all these active guys have to rebalance every quarter, right? So I think it'd be an interesting um, proposition to the asset management industry on, you know, if you actually buy firms that are more sustainable at this particular time, and see what happens after market recovery. I think that'd be a very re interesting research question for the academic researchers 
but also a very potentially very insightful exercise from you know practitioners as well. You're a professor there, so you obviously have to keep your um, your students challenged, intellectually challenged. And we're talking about ecosystems and your example about a big company helping out a smaller company just to keep that ecosystem alive. You're apparently a Spurs fan. I won't hold it against you. I'm a big Liverpool fan. But right now, I think that the English football is the perfect example of how an ecosystem is basically teetering at the brink. So, you know, you've got the big, rich Premier League clubs and then you've got the rest of football, which is is surviving week to week. And we're... There's some real uh, deep philosophical questions to be answered. How those clubs are going to help out the smaller clubs? And then within the organizations themselves, you've just seen over the weekend, my club, Liverpool, they've left off, I think, 200, 250 staff. They're saying the staff will be paid 100% of their wages, but 80% of the wages are going to come from the government. So we're talking ultimately big picture about resource allocation, a profit-making enterprise like Liverpool Football Club, which is a global brand is effectively taking resources away from the state that could be allocated to the NHS, for instance, and they're uh, using it to pay employees. So I I think, um, I don't know what your thoughts on it, but my feeling is that it's it's the bigger clubs are ultimately going to have to work to keep that ecosystem alive or we won't have a proper football league next year. And two, I think that clubs like Liverpool are going to have to find clever ways to deal with these issues of cost because they're going to save money on 200 staff, the ordinary people that are working, keeping the club alive, while our biggest budget is players' wages, etc. And I'm sure you talk to Firmino, Mane, these players, they're willing to support the club. Like So I think the owners just have to think a little bit more sensibly about where they can save costs. No, I, I totally agree with you. And then, um, so I had few opportunities to meet with, um, you know, corporate issuers and their executive level people on ESG. And they asked me, why should we do ESG? Why should we be more sustainable? You know, it doesn't look like it's it's going to help us much. And, but I, I turn it around and say that it actually, you know what, it actually may help you the most. And that's essentially what you're pointing out right now with the Liverpool situation, right? If you don't have that ecosystem anymore, especially in the context of COVID-19, what are you going to do after things recover, right? You have to have that whole infrastructure be rebuilt again, right? So that I think it is not only being responsible for the society, but also watching it after yourself. So it's a very interesting uh, time. What's also interesting in it as well, and, and you know, I normally don't jump in on the Liverpool uh, conversation. <laughs> part of the podcast is the so Vincent you you, you mentioned the, the you know the likes of Firmino and Mane and, and all of them who want to continue to support the club want to see the, the club uh can survive never mind prosper through this but then you have the 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 equivalent of the union of the Premier League uh, players who are making noise about not taking a 30 percent uh, pay cut during this time when it is you, you know the, the the wages are phenomenally excessive and using using the tax the tax take to support the NHS as a reason so like I think we we're seeing uh you know the outpouring of of the the Liverpool fans and support of the of the the 200 or so employees has been phenomenal but you're seeing the the ugly side of of soccer as well with that yeah unfortunately Emer, look the world is is run by suits in the end of the day and some of the people in these organizations are very blinkered in their thinking so I think Wayne Rooney and a few other soccer players have come out and spoken about it in that 
when you talk about a player's union, for instance, you can have one player on 200 grand a week and you could have another player on 200 quid a week. That's the nature of football. So it's not really black and white, but I would say that the, the union in the UK has made a serious, serious blunder in terms of the statements that they've put out. And they've managed the situation very badly because you look at, at the Premier League footballers and most of them, like, you know, even if you said, lads, you're not getting paid for three months, the vast majority of them would say, okay, that's fine. If the money is going directly to the NHS, I actually genuinely believe they would, they would support that. And interestingly, there was an article out yesterday with a player who spoke anonymously about this subject and he's been donating his wages for the last three years. So I think that the, the unions have managed it badly. I also think the leadership of some of these clubs have managed it badly because, again, it comes back to the, the blinkered thinking. And I think this is where ESG can come in and actually help some of these decision makers. Instead of just looking at things in a purely numerical way, you, you start to bring in the social side of it. You start to bring in the kind of environment. Without an ecosystem, there is no business, you know. So I think if ESG is implemented in the right way, across organizations, it can actually change the way people think to much more longer term thinking. And we wouldn't be running into these types of PR blunders. Like, I mean, that guy's probably on a million a year himself to run that union. You know, the Liverpool executives are paid pretty handsomely as well. I mean, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know the decisions they've taken in the last few weeks are completely contrary to the values of most of the people involved. Like Liverpool, Liverpool is a club I'm really passionate about. Liverpool is a working class city. Like it's a it's a club of the people in the end of the day. So I think we've let ourselves down badly. And you've seen legends like Jamie Carragher, their man, come out and talk about this. And I think um I hope in the coming weeks that they, they change that and kind of think a bit more longer term in terms of, of what they're doing. Well, you're definitely going to have your uh, your membership revoked at this point, Vincent. Well, look. Jorgen Klopp's all about spirit, so I'm only talking from the heart. So it might not always be 100% right, but I'm just sharing my perspectives, which we all have. But, um, you know, one of the things when I was I was uh, thinking about our conversation today ahead of this uh, podcast was, in a way, you know, you're, you kind of epitomized the American dream. Your family moved over from Korea. You attended one of the most prestigious universities in the U.S. You're now teaching at one of the most prestigious universities in the U.S., and one of the, I lived in the US for five years. And one of the things that always kind of the American dream is something that Americans really hold on to tightly. And it's kind of what keeps them going, oh, the American dream, you know, like you can make it from nothing, you know, that kind of idea, which is great. And, and there is people that have done it. But on the other side of it, these people like feel like to put in a social safety net is almost compromising that American dream. And I'm, I'm interested, do you kind of pose that? that type of question to your own MBA students and like, where is the balance there? Like keeping that kind of drive that comes with the American dream that you can make it, you can do well, but at the same time realizing that there's a huge percentage of the population are just living paycheck to paycheck. Right. Um, so, I mean, another sort of third point on that is that a lot of, um, so let me, let me just step back because um, I often, I spent some time in Asia as well, like Hong Kong, China, and Korea. And uh, I can speak for Korea at the very least because, you know, I'm ethnically Korean. I still have a Korean passport um, and the citizenship. Korea is a place where even if you go to the most prestigious university, you may not even have a job, like a proper job. And there's a lot of countries in the world that are like that. You know, you go to Egypt and taxi drivers have PhD, PhDs, right? Whereas I feel like U.S. is still um, 
you know, there's a lot of that, you know, American dream element and, you know, you can, you can make it here type of element, right? If you really try hard. So I, I think in that sense, I think U.S. still has, you know, a lot of, you know, bright future. Um, but I think I want to sort of emphasize the importance of leaders, I think, you know, uh, in serving the society uh, in the context of ESG as well. But, you know, you mentioned all the, you know, football team or, you know, uh, soccer teams, right? Another, um, you know, example is that in Major League Baseball, there are these uh, big, big shot players donating, you know, a couple thousand dollars to every single minor league players, right? I'm not sure if you've seen it. And it's essentially the same argument, right? But you need that tone from the leaders, you know, and I think where, where is it going to go, you know, from the U.S. perspective? You know, we have elections coming up very soon, so, you know, we'll figure out how things will pan out. But you know, all I can really say, I think, on that point is that, you know, we really need the right leaders with the right minds, uh, you know, wherever you go. And that has a huge, tremendous impact on, you know, the social uh, you know, policies and social welfare and, and the direction of the country. And I think one of the things, I suppose, economics and even the, the being a professor is to kind of provoke intellectual debate and discussion to try and drive new new ideas and innovations, et cetera. And, what slightly concerns me, and I won't draw you on it too much because it's, it may get political, but in the US, I always found it was a, a very kind of steep divide between red and blue, and it just seems to have got worse. And if you look at the media, that intellectual debate is almost being being kind of dampened down a bit that like you can't really say anything about one style of economic like, you know, I'm either capitalist or socialist. You know, I'm always put in a box. I can't just say, you know what, I believe that the profit motive in this way works great. I also believe that a social safety net in terms of universal basic income is sensible. I, w- I hope in the next breed of leaders that we can get and hopefully more y- more youth involved where we can actually have those discussions and we arrive at much more kind of a compromise system instead of saying, no, we're capitalists and this is the way we think, or we're socialists and we can't adopt that. And and and, and that would be my hope with the US and the rest of the world, to be honest, because we've seen it here in Ireland as well. You know, I, I totally want to, you know, just echo that. Me as an educator, you know, like I just mentioned 10 minutes ago, that I really encourage students to have their own view on every single thing that they see, you know, not just, you know, read the news and just believe it as truth, right? And I think that's where academics who are educators and researchers add value. And I, I feel like that's sort of the role of myself, you know, it, it, to, to add value to the society and, and to the academic community. I think the, the role of, of leaders is, is essential there. And the role of academics, Aaron, is, is, is critical. Like that's the, if, you, if, you, if you could teach anybody, everybody that you came into contact with about how to think critically, uh, you'd have a very, very, very good job. But there's a huge role that the media has played in the dampening down of that debate and the the acceptance of that by the population as well. So I think while we're while we're encouraging our, our leaders, we also need to to, to make sure that our, our media do their jobs as well. That's true. Um, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and hopefully, you know, we'll have a few more series and we can get you on again and discuss other elements of ESG. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to another episode of the ESG Factor. If you have any comments or questions on this episode or the show in general, please email desgfactor at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. This series is brought to you by ESG Ireland and the Institute of Banking. 
ESG Ireland is an independent knowledge centre focused on delivering taught leadership, education and the latest developments on ESG in decision making. Find out more by visiting ESG.ie or at ESG Ireland on social media. The Institute of Banking is a recognised college of UCD. It's a professional network of over 34,000 individuals working in financial services and is a centre of excellence in the provision of specialist education and lifelong learning to the financial services sector. Find out more by visiting iob.ie.